So that's up. What we're going to do right now is um, begin to jump into the book of Daniel. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up to the book of Daniel. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Um, we started the book of Daniel uh, several weeks ago. I was gone last week. Um, but we are going to be jumping back into the book of Daniel. And what I wanted to do is I want to actually start with a, a question, um, more so um, an image that I'm going to let you guys take a look at. But the question that I really want to ask is, um, what do all of these images have in common? So I need kind of audience participation here. So as soon as you find your place in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, all eyes up on the screen. So what, what do all of these images have, have in common with each other? Anybody want to take a wild, crazy, random guess? Famous, right? That's good. Uh, leaders, yeah, sure. Um, ah, there you go. Influencers. All of these are influencers. All of them. All of them are influencers. Um, they all have means by which they influence. So the next slide, you can see the big influencer thing. So um, uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun, too, just to carry that a little bit further. It's like, uh, um, like speed round. Um, let's see how, how well you know your, your influencers. Um, again, these are the top four, or the like top within the realm of maybe top 20. These are just four picked randomly out of the top 20. I had to pick them selectively because some of them didn't have a whole lot of clothes on, so I had to choose ones that actually uh, look somewhat normal. Um, so, but, but these are influencers right now, 2008. Can you, can you name any of these? Okay, good job. Good. That's easy. It's an easy one. Next one. Another easy one. Rock, yes. Okay. Who else? Next. Kevin Hart, yeah, good. All right, what else? Who said that? Yeah, you're proud of it. Yes, that's great. So, so, so these, are, these are all the top influencers on Instagram, by the way. Um, and as, as I was thinking about this, like, this is the world we live in. We live in a world that has, has been able to elevate people that maybe would not have anything whatsoever to contribute to society at large other than a large bus size or um, an ability to sell good jokes or they're a good photographer, whatever the case is. And then they have this platform and they use this platform to become like uber famous. Um, and then they earn this title called, called influencer. So they have this audience, millions and millions and millions strong, by which they post something, and then that post then becomes the means by which people feed off of it, and they're influenced by it. But one thing that I found that's kind of fascinating, just thinking about this, is that each of these people have this influential voice that speaks to our perceptions of anything ranging from masculinity. In other words, what should a real dude look like? How big of muscle should he have? Should they measure up to the rock somehow? I mean, again, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just making these statements. Yeah, no, okay. But, but the point of the matter is, or what are perceptions of beauty? Do you have to look like, you know, Kim Kardashian? Do you have to have, you know, a, a body figure that's of a certain range? Do you have to have a certain amount of makeup on? Um, do you, you know what I'm saying? Do you have to be a certain shade of, of tan in order to be conformed into this perception of, of beauty? Um, but also you can think about the bigger idea of what, what constitutes the good life, a good life. Like if I were to ask you that right now, uh, tell me what is your perception of what a good life is. Every one of you have an answer to that somehow. That's gonna, it's gonna vary. And the reason why it varies is because of your family of origin, where you came from, the influences that uh, were from your past, the influences that are from your present, um, maybe even to some degree how you view God, um, how you view yourself. All of these things will shape what your perception of a, of a good life is. 
And we all have some idea. So it, it's a helpful trick somehow to some degree to begin to ask yourself what, what is your perception of that, but that's not the main point of today. Uh, I really what I want to look at here this morning is this larger concept of, of um, influence. Um, when I think about this, I made this little slide as well, that really at the end of the day, real influencers, these, these are really real influencers. So you got, um, I, I don't know, I guess you could call them inauthentic influencers, although this is the crazy, shocking, paradoxical reality of it is, is that they get this platform because they're viewed as authentic. Do, do you understand the irony there? Oh, they're so authentic. Oh my gosh, they just let everything hang. Is, is it really that authentic? Or did it, actually take them 30 times to get that Instagram shot because 29 of them look trashy. How authentic is that, right? So, but, but the point of the matter is, I would say this, I would argue that real influencers of society are really those that don't just influence, but they, they create. And, and what, in other words, what I mean by that is they, they live into their God-given gift and vocation to actually create something, make something. You know, that's what a father is, right? Or a father should be. Is that a father really is one that creates safe space. We call it home. Where a kid can be a kid. Where a kid can be safe. Where a kid can maybe make mistakes. And within that realm of making mistakes, they, they, they'll be disciplined. Not, not punished. Not to the point of like anger. But disciplined, guided, shaped. That's, that's creating space. That's creating a, a spot. Now, some of you are from families where that's not what happened to you. You had a father that created an unsafe zone. It was not safe for you to be imperfect. It was not safe for you to be yourself. And in and, and acting within that realm, uh, it, was, it was something where you were punished for. And you faced the, the anger and the wrath of, of dad. Unsafe zone. Um, but the point of the matter is, I mean, this, this is really what real influencers look like in society and culture at large is they actually create, that's what coaches and teachers and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, that's what they all do. They create. And through that act of creation, of creating space, creating a sense of grace, uh, they are creating these arenas where they're influencing the lives of those within their realm. That make sense? And, and either for good or evil, for good, where kids can look back maybe 30, 40, 50 years and look back at mom or dad and be like, oh my gosh, mom and dad, uh, they, they poured into me, they built me up, they encouraged me, they strengthened me, they were there for me when I was weak and crying and having a hard time, or they just simply didn't and it was an unsafe zone. So all that to be said is this bigger picture of um, influence is so crucial, and I think it plays in the very first chapter of the book of Daniel, because what we see here in short, by way of summary, again, we spent two weeks looking at sort of the little bit of the backstory of the book of Daniel, and then last week we got up to like verse eight, which was Daniel determined his heart, and we looked at kind of the reason why Daniel did there, not last week, but two weeks ago. What I want to do today is I want to look at the rest of the chapter, so we will look at the rest of chapter one of the book of Daniel, and what I want to look at are really two main big picture concepts, I think, arise in the chapter that will begin to make sense for you in a moment. Number one is we're going to take a look at Babylon's attempt to influence, and then we'll unpack that in a moment, and then we'll take a look at how actually the main characters of the book of Daniel, which are Daniel and his three buddies, and how they were actually able to withstand the influence of Babylon, and then themselves become influencers. So, 
This past week, I had a unique opportunity to go to Yosemite. It was, was awesome. We had some friends that have a cabin. We got to stay in the cabin. And they have this uh, cabin in this place called Wawona, just outside of Yosemite. And uh, so here we were in this area. Um, there's massive waterfall. And I've, I've been to Yosemite a few times. And, uh, but, but this time of year, I, I, from what I understand, uh, what's the name of the river? I just blanked on it. Merced. Okay, I knew that. But I forgot it because I'm... I lose my mind sometimes. But the Merced River, it was like major overflow. It was so crazy. I'd never seen it this, this high. And as a result of that, obviously, um, every waterfall was just off the charts, like just crazy massive. Um, several years ago, when I had gone to uh, the region of uh, Waiwona, um, we went into the river. And the river was not like on flood state. It was, it was actually pretty docile. So you can actually walk in the middle of it at the deepest area. It might be, you know, deep right here. And you're just, you're standing in it. And you know it's moving because you can see leaves fly by you. But it's, it's not in any way, shape, or form affecting you. Because you can actually stand in the river and not have in any way push you down. So, but this river, this time of year, like the Merced, was you, you don't even want to set foot in it. I mean, there's, unless there's like little eddies where you can step in. But for the most part, you do not want to step in there because it was so fast, rushing so quickly, you would literally be taken down and you, you die. It was, just, it was really, really bad. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what culture is. There's, there's hard power, which is like a rushing Merced River that you step into it. And before you know it, you have been taken away. You are making radical compromises with your life with what the values that you know to be true. And then there is soft power, which you step in it, which you don't really know it, but within you know, an hour or so, before you know it, you're, just, you're going down a little bit further. Before you know it, you're like 20 feet, and you don't even really know exactly what happened. Well, what happened was the current took you. The current took you. I mean, in some cases, you know the current is so strong. Uh, they're the warning signs. It'd be kind of like if someone were to walk in here, be like, right now, you know, they got a you know, suicide vest strapped to them, and they're like, deny Jesus, otherwise I'm going to blow this up. You'd be like, kill me, like, that's whatever. I'm not going to deny Jesus. But if someone were to come in here, you know, just like with, with martinis and like porn or whatever, like, hey, come join me. It's like a party. It's, it's, one is a slow drift. One is a fast drift. It's the fast drift, the hard power, it's easy to resist, right? Do you understand what I'm talking about? It's the little compromises that we make that set us on a course, a trajectory, that before we know it, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, we'd begun to drift so far from where we once started out that then the real actions of those choices that were made 15 years ago, 20 years ago, begin to become more realized. That's, that's what influence is. But again, we, we've been saying all along that what's shocking about Daniel is he was literally ripped from everything he knew. And yet over the course of a very long lifetime, never drifted from it. It's, it's, it's an absolute amazing case study of people that know their identity, know who they are, that live this long life of obedience. So with that, I wanna just jump right in. We'll take a look at those two main things and, and then I'm done. So, so you ready? Let's, first of all, take a look at Babylon's attempt to influence. There are three main ways that oftentimes scholars, Bible teachers, commentators have basically identified that this happens or takes place. So this, none of this is like my, you know, um, creation. This is all stuff I've ripped off from other good people. So anyway, here you go. I'm repackaging it for you. You're welcome. Okay, so number one, we see that Babylon influences, first of all, by isolation. They influence by isolation. So uh, what we see here in the story 
is that Daniel and his three buddies, they're basically pulled away from uh, their region. The beginning of the chapter starts out that in the year of Jehoiakim, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar comes down. He takes this massive um, group of people living in Jerusalem and deports them, I don't know, 1,500 or so miles away from home. Uh, he ransacks their temple. In other words, their religious elements, everything that they knew, everything that was familiar to them, everything that they once held dear was literally stripped from them. They were literally isolated from every type of cultural element that they once had known. Again, mind you, I looked at this a couple weeks ago with you guys, and I pointed out that Daniel and his friends would have been probably between 14 to 18 years old. Teenagers. That's, that's when they lost everything. That's when their 9-11 happened. Okay? So here they are, pulled away in isolation, and because this is exactly what, what Babylon does. Now, again, we've mentioned this to you before, that, that Babylon, uh, even though this was a real empire that actually took place and happened, uh, we also know that throughout the Bible, the Bible uses uh, Babylon as sort of the quintessential example of earthly empire. It's one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon becomes part of this main conversation that God says, one day I'm going to overcome Babylon. So Babylon is ubiquitous uh, throughout all history in terms of its spread and its reach. It's sort of this quintessential example or template of all earthly worldly empires that basically try to create civilization without God. So that's what I want you to understand. That's what basically the, the depiction of this is. It's, it's worldly empire that is seeking to build itself up without the importation of God's nature at the very center, God's presence at its center, okay? So with that, we see that the way that Babylon influences is by way of isolation, to pull people away. So I would suggest, again, as we go through this, I want to just pause and just reflect on some of these elements. Um, isolation, it, that's number one way he, the enemy of our souls seeks to try to distract us and remove us from what God wants, is he isolates us removes us from some sense of community. That happens. It happens all the time. I talk with people all the time. And again, there's a shocking element in terms of uh, modern world in which we think about even social media today. Um, Sherry Turkle, I think her name is. I'm sure you can find her on a, on a TED Talk. She has written uh, lots of books about this, but one of the things she talks about is in this world in which we are so connected, hyper-connected, we're actually more disconnected than we've ever been, ever. Because you can lay in bed for three hours, swiping left, swiping up, swiping down, and feel so incredibly alone. Even though you've been engaging on numerous fronts with people that you call friends. So isolation is a major element which Babylon works by. Number two is enculturation. And what we see in verse five is the king assigns them this daily portion of food that the king ate, so his, his food actually comes right off of the king's table, it's the wine that he drank, and they were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So this was an enculturation process that the king of Babylon was attempting to basically do is, this is social programming, social engineering. Um, to maybe put it in another context, this was Babylon seeking to make Jewish people Babylonians. Does that make sense? So the point that I want for you to think about is, again, we live in a culture that's not docile when it comes to an agenda. You need to know this. You need to be aware of this because many of us are not. And again, you can, you can go from one extreme to the next. And we've talked about this before in terms of how we are to really deal with society at large. There's two major extremes. I'll go through these real fast. Number one, there is the extreme of separatism where we separate 
we isolate ourselves from culture. And Christians have been responsible for doing this for many, many years. Uh, there are elements even within Christianity today. Um, I think we typically go to like what? Not, not Quakers. What's the other one? Oh, I'm not sure you go. They you know, turn their own butter. They, you know, that whole, the whole idea of, of anything in society at large is bad. And again, I'm, I, I may be grossly oversimplifying. So if you're Amish, deeply apologize. So I don't want to offend you. But the idea is, is to remove oneself as much and as far away as you can from anything that is steeped in society at large. It's evil. It's wicked. Remove yourself from it entirely. That's kind of this idea of separatism. The second of which is syncretism, which we just basically imbibe undiscerningly, culture at large. We let culture shape us, and we don't even really know it. Again, this is that slow drift. It's not that big, hardcore, make these radical decisions to deny Jesus. Nobody does that. And if you're forced to do that, you probably have enough mind to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But what happens is we enter into this slow drift that over time begins to erode and remove and cause us to drift. And it's what happens. So there's this idea of syncretism, where over time we become just like Babylon, just like the culture at large. So we see this is part of the enculturation process. Uh, what's interesting to me as I think about this in terms of the context of Christianity, this is sort of the equivalent within Christianity of discipleship. That's what's happening in culture at large. We are either being shaped as disciples of Jesus, who are becoming transformed, becoming more like Jesus, or we are being shaped by society and culture at large, becoming more looking like, acting like, representing uh, the morals, the ideas, the concepts of society at large, which is different than the gospel. Um, so what Babylon oftentimes does is it comes after us. And it comes after our appetites and our ambitions. Our appetites and our ambitions. The things that we long for, the things that we, we desire. It's one of the reasons why you can go on Instagram and find anything that your heart longs for. If you want food porn, it's there. If you're on real porn, I'm sure you can find it. Anything you want, it's there. You just dig around and you will find it. The problem is, after partaking, you're not satisfied. You're not happy. You have not given your life any form of meaning or idea or concept that gives you an ideal to live for beyond yourself. This is the idea that we are being enculturated to become like the culture. It's a training. It's a discipleship process. The shows that we watch. Again, this is why I would suggest, if, you're, if you are going to watch TV, if you watch movies, that's something that you're going to spend a lot of time doing. What I would highly recommend, know the message. Become so well-versed in the message that's trying to be communicated to you. Because it's not just uh, trying to be communicated, it's trying to shape you into a particular ideal or concept. And that's not conspiracy, that's not conspiratorial. It's just a simple fact. And the point that I'd make is that there are some messages that lead to life, because they're part of the gospel. And then there's other messages that lead far away from God. It's all part of the message of, of Babylon. To create a society that's counter to the kingdom values of Yahweh. The one who loves us and who gives himself for us. So the second thing or the third thing that I want to begin to look at is number one, Babylon attempts to influence us by isolation, by enculturation, and thirdly, by integration and then identification. So the idea of integration, now listen to what it says in verses six through seven. Then the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. 
So next slide, I'll show you some examples of this. You can take a photo of this if you want. Uh, I'll just go through real quickly. Number one, the name Daniel. Each of their names, uh, the word El is the Hebrew word for, for God or Yahweh. Um, the idea of God, you see that kind of played out into the various names. So Daniel means God is my judge. Uh, Hananiah is Yahweh, uh, is gracious. Michelle, who is like God. Yahweh is my helper. Yahweh is a helper. Uh, from Azariah, I get the Hebrew word uh, Azer, Azer. From that particular word, God is my helper. Um, but then what happens is their names are now changed. And again, this is part of the enculturation process. It's part of the, uh, the approach to basically say, you guys, you Jewish boys, are now Babylonians. You're going to live like a Babylonian. So that's, that's the rub that we live in. We live in a culture that on the one hand, it does not look at Christianity and be like, oh, cool, you're a Christian, right on, we, we welcome your morals. It's not what happens in today's world. It's more like, oh, you're a Christian, you bigot. You horrible person. Are you kidding me? Like, it's, it's not accepted as maybe it once was. And again, there's all sorts of arguments. Was, Christ, was America a Christian nation? I'm not even going to go down that path. But the point that I would make is that what's happening in our culture today is there is a process of training and discipleship, if you want to call it that. And we have choices that we have to make. What will we allow shape us? Culture at large, influencers, or the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And this is what we see in the life of Daniel, which we'll come to in just a moment here. But again, when they change their names to each of these guys, Daniel is Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, each of these names actually now bear the names of the, each of the, uh, the pagan deities from, from Babylon. Now, what, what I want to point out about this, I find kind of fascinating, because this is not just simply, hey, let's change your name to a name that's a little bit more easier for us as Babylonians to pronounce that are not, not Jewish. This is, this is a strategic attempt to basically say your stories now are merged or part of the ancient Babylonian stories. So if you're familiar with the ancient Babylon or ancient Mesopotamian region, uh, they had actually a creation account. It's called the Enuma Elish. It's pretty well known. It was one of the longest standing creation stories that's ever been around. And I'm absolutely certain that this is what Daniel and his three buddies were forced to learn. It was, it was a way of basically saying you're, you're Babylonian now. You're going to take Babylonian names, and we're going to make you become aware and familiar and live out the Babylonian narrative. And uh, again, if you're Daniel and his three friends' um, sandals, <laughs> um, you would ask, uh, what are we supposed to do? What, what, where, what do we hold on to as far as our identity is concerned? And what are some things that we can allow ourselves to learn? Like, uh, it's interesting that Daniel did not have a problem letting them change his name, or even learning the native constructs and ideas and maps of meaning that were kind of surrounding the Babylonian uh, world concept, that they, they learned all these things. And what I want for us to really be aware of is the stories that you believe about God totally matter. Totally matter. In fact, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this morning is, is that the stories you believe, the myths you believe, the ideas, the ideologies you believe, your God narratives, however you want to think about it, absolutely matter. Because you will live according to those narratives. <laughs> Whatever those narratives are, they, they will become the very foundation cornerstones of how you treat your neighbor, how you think about money, how you think about sexuality, how you think about your work ethic. It, it will absolutely shape everything in your life. Everything in your life. So choose your, choose your narratives carefully. 
be aware of what narratives are trying to shape you because there's an agenda, there's an attempt. Again, like I said, this is not conspiratorial. It is the way it is. It is the world in which we live in. So the point that I would make is all of this is essential. As we go on, I want to take a look now at Daniel's response and how Daniel and his three friends were actually able to bring about influence themselves. Uh, because we know that even though there were certain things that Daniel allowed himself to do, again, there seems to be no pushback. Daniel's not like, we refuse these names. But what I do like about this is that Daniel's kind of like, look, you can put your name on me. I mean, obviously, this is not in the text. I'm making all this up. Daniel, it's almost as if Daniel's saying, like, you can put your name on me, but it doesn't give me my identity. It doesn't matter what you say about me. It's not what's truest about me. How is it possible that Daniel and his three buddies were able to live into this? Well, I think these three reasons. Number one is they knew. They knew their truest identity. They knew from whom they came from. They knew that they were part of this larger family line of Abraham, sons, daughters of, of Abraham, that ultimately go back to the very garden, made in the image of God. They, they were aware of this. They lived into that. They knew that they were Exodus people, which means that they knew that their family of origin, their ancestors, were once enslaved by Egyptians. He knew this, that we were the ones that were set free. And so therefore, we were ones who were once set free from our sin, from our bondage, from our slavery. Now we've been given new ways to live according to Yahweh, live according to the ways of God. And Daniel recognized this is what we are called to live into. It all begins because he knew who and what his identity was rooted in. And I would suggest to you that we live in a culture right now that has lost its mind when it comes to who we are. And I want to suggest to you this, that if you're somebody that wrestles with this, you wrestle to some degree, who am I? I don't know where and who I am or where I should be or how I should live or how I should spend my money or how I should think about my sexuality. Or if you don't know how to think about these things, I, trust me, if you go to the interwebs to try to determine this, you will end up in nothing but confusion over and over and over again. I want to suggest to you again, this is not what God offers. There is another way. Daniel knew there's another way. It can't be the way of isolation. It can't be the way of syncretism. There has to be a third way. And this is what Daniel and his three buddies lived into. They lived into the identity that they had been given by God as Exodus people. We are freedom people. We've been set free. And again, this is where you have a total clash of worldviews. Babylonian myth basically said there's an elite class of humanity. We call them the gods or demigods, depending upon you know, what range of you know, greatness you kind of... And then there's everybody else, slaves, peasants, the workforce. So guess what? If you are part of the demigod class, the ruling class, how would you treat those that are of the slave or the working force? Like garbage. Why? Because your worldview. This is how the gods have arranged things. It's how Bel and Marduk and these creation myths have arranged for society to be. And you live into that storyline. But what if you have a different narrative that says all people were made in the image of God, all have fallen far from God, but this God rescues people and he elevates people and he even gives opportunity for people like the Egyptians to turn. That changes your worldview. 
because now you see yourself as a part of a community that God is at work in. And you are not better than anybody. You can't be and act with condescension towards anyone because you are part of this family that Daniel sees himself. So he was very clear about who his truest and what his truest identity was. Secondly, we see that he lived with excellence. This kind of takes place within a variety of verses. I'll just read a handful of these just so that you can catch the flavor. It says this, God gave Daniel in verse 9, favor and compassion inside of the chief of the eunuchs. This is right after Daniel says, we're not going to eat the the, the meat and the drink or the wine from the king. Again, this is, this is a really interesting thing that's happening here in the text, and, and I don't really have the time to tease it out all the way, but I just want you to, I want to hint at it. Because it's interesting, Daniel is actually described. Let me show you a quick little description of who Daniel and these four men are. Um, I think I have a slide up there that kind of gives a little bit of a brief description of who these guys are. Somewhere? Yeah, here we go. Okay, uh, number one, we're told that these, in verses three to four, these were, this is again by way of review, these are people from the royal family, from the nobility, Royal family, nobility. Um, who, who else has been given the charge to rule? Ah, it should immediately cause your head space to go all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where God created all humanity in his image to rule, have dominion. Well, now Daniel's part of this. Um, now that these are used without blemish. That phrase is really fascinating because it's literally the exact same phrase in Hebrew that you find in the book of Leviticus that basically says take, take a... a, a a priest who is spotless, without blemish. This is language that identifies there's something unique about Daniel. He's not just some random dude. He is he's without spot, he's without blemish. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Not, don't, don't read too much of a wooden literal interpretation of this. Um, it goes on to say he's, he's good looking. He's a young guy, he's good looking. He's wise, uh, endowed with knowledge, understanding of learning. He's competent to stand in the king's place. Now here Daniel, uh, this kingly potential figure, is given the opportunity to eat what in his mind is viewed as forbidden fruit. The question is, where else have we seen this in the story of the Bible? Someone who is given rulership, power, ability, and yet presented with forbidden fruit, and they, they ate. Here's Daniel, far away from home, presented with forbidden fruit, and Daniel says, no. How? Why? Daniel says, I, I know who I am. I belong to Yahweh. I'm, I'm his. He's mine. How, how can I do this thing? But then we go on to see the next slide. As we go on to the second thing that we see with regard to these guys that they were able to live into is that they lived with excellence. So we see that Daniel basically says, I'm not going to eat of the king's fruit uh, or the food. In verse 10, he says, and the chief of the eunuchs and says to him, I fear the Lord my king that who has assigned your food and your drink. And why should he uh, see that you guys are in a worse condition than all the other you see in other age. In other words, he's basically saying, you're endangering my life because if I don't force you to eat the food that the king's assigned for you to eat, then you guys are gonna look really bad and I'm gonna get you know, killed. That's, that's, I don't wanna lose my job like that. Uh, verse 12, he goes on to say, Daniel comes back and he says, hey, why don't you test us for 10 days? So he's literally like bartering with his, his captor, right? He's bartering with him. He's like, I, I know you have a position of authority and we're just like 14 years old, but we're asking you, would, would you let us just eat, you know, vegetables and not the king's food? Um, then he basically says, sure, whatever. Let's give you 10 days and see what it looks like. Verse 13, it says, then the appearance, uh, uh, is the appearance of the use of the king's food it says, then go ahead and you can deal with this however it is that you see, verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter. Verse 17, skip on down. 
says, then God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In other words, God, God was with them. Daniel made these wise choices and decisions that says, we're not gonna defile ourselves. We're gonna live with excellence. Everything that we do, we're gonna do it with the highest level of ability that we have in our power because we represent this God because we know who we are. Third thing is that we see, I'm almost done, is that we see that they were maintaining this long obedience in the same direction. Um, this is, again, just the beginning of the story. But if you fast forward towards the end of Daniel's career, he's with, within the region of the Persian Empire now. Daniel's a really old guy. It's kind of this part where Daniel gets tossed into the lion's den, right? It's like, that's like years and years advance in the future. What we see with Daniel, he's, he's continued to be giving these choices. You know, serve our gods or die. And Daniel's like, that's the easy one. I'll serve, I'll, I'll, I'll serve my God. And if I gotta die, whatever, go for it. How is it he was able to do that? Because over a long pattern of life, Daniel had choices, little choices, hundreds of small choices that he said, within his understanding of who I am and living with excellence before this God, I will serve my, my God. And no matter what type of repercussions you give my way, it's not gonna shake my faith because I have a God that loves me, who gave himself for me. I can't, I'm not gonna deny him. You can kill me. And if God chooses to save us, whatever, that'd be awesome. If not, we, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be dead in the morning anyhow, right? It doesn't matter. And I love this about Daniel. This is a long, and we, what we know about Daniel's life are these little snapshots. Like, again, if you want to get more information on this, go back two weeks on the website, listen to the message that, that I taught on this, so I go in a little bit more detail and background on all this. But what, what I know about Daniel's life is that throughout the course of his life, he had these habits of reading scripture, of praying three times a day. He's like devoting himself to God praying. Daniel had a deep awareness of the presence of God everywhere he was. Even, even, ready for this? Even in pagan, militaristic world superpowers like Babylon. You cannot escape the presence of God. Daniel had a deep awareness of this. And he lived into it. And it helped create this person, this character, that was able to withstand, withstand, and not just withstand, but actually influence pagan empire. You guys, this is what I find amazing, is that this whole idea of us becoming people that are influencers is ultimately shaped by our identity. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to just kind of conclude with some passages that remind us, if you're a follower of Jesus here, this is who you are in case, in case we have amnesia, which we all do, we all do. All right, we all do, because we're constantly feeding off of these like, other alternate sources that are saying, this is who you are, this is what's going on here, this is how confused you should be with regard to this and that, and sexuality, and your job, and your idea, and your identity, all these other things. There's all these voices that are conflicting constantly over on repeat in our head, in society at large, and it's, it's just good to pause and just quiet ourselves before scripture and say, God, who do you say that I am? Um, so I almost sang that one song. What's that song? Lauren Daigle. Oh, my gosh. That was a song that came to my head. Do not sing it. <laughs> Sorry. Do not, I'm just kidding. I don't know why I said that. Um, anyways, let's just get to the scripture and finish with this. All right. Who are you? And what does God say about you? And these are some things. Number one, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all of the earth. This was God's ideal in creation, um, made in God's image. I don't know what image you think you currently possess and or how disgusted you are by that image or projection of yourself. I don't know how you see yourself or how you think others see yourself. I want you to understand how God sees you. You bear his image. It doesn't end there, though. It gets even better because he uses language. He says, let him have dominion. And this is language of kingship. This is language that says he's got a role, a task in this world to do something. And then he begins to give this expanse that God says, humanity is to live with me on this planet, ruling and reigning over everything. And he goes on. It just kind of underlines some of these things. From sea to the heavens, it's just above everything. And then the earth, this tangible dirt-like substance beneath our feet. Everything. This, where does human, humanity reign? Everywhere. But currently right now, because we know things have gone horribly wrong in Genesis 3, that currently all these rule us. We die. At some point, we get buried six feet under the dirt. It rules over us. But the hope of the gospel is that God inverted all this. That's what Jesus did. That's the whole reality of why we celebrate as a gathering, today of all days, why we don't celebrate on a Monday night, which is fine. If you want to have church on Monday night, great. I'm not against that. But why we choose Sunday as a day to celebrate? Because it's the first day that represents the first day of the week in which God sent his son, Jesus, in this world, who died, suffered under sin and brokenness and chaos, and yet conquered it, coming out the other end of death, resurrection, new life, ruling and reigning. When we see Jesus casting out demonic forces in the unseen realm, in people's lives, and bringing dignity back into people that were off in the margins, or giving food to those that were suffering and starving and not having anything, or giving their humanity back to people that had just become dehumanized by the crunch and the grind of the system. We see a God who is literally at work resetting the order of things, exercising dominion, and inviting us to follow him into new life. So number one, made in his image. Number two, John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says, I've called you friends. I want you to just pause and think about this for a second. I don't know how you think about God or how you even think he thinks of you. Try this one for size. Jesus says to you, you're my friend. I think many of us have this very distorted view because we're constantly looking at God through the lens of our own lives and our own failures and our own brokenness and we think that God is actually angry with us or mildly disappointed, or disturbed, or frustrated, constantly. But listen to the words of Jesus. You are my friends. You are my friends. Uh, thirdly, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for your own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Number one, chosen race. Think about this. How many of you grew up, you don't raise your hand, uh, but you were the one that was always being omitted on the court, right? Dodgeball, like, don't pick that person. He's slow, all right? Um, like, maybe I'm tapping into my, like, inner child, like, that was me. But uh, all that aside, if you were that person that was never chosen, never chosen, for whatever reason, not pretty enough, not fit enough, not strong enough, not fast enough, whatever the case is, Try this one on for size. You are chosen by God. He chose you. He loved you. Loves you. Present tense, not past tense. Present tense. Future tense. 
All tenses. He loves you. Chose you. Uh, secondly, we see that you're a royal priesthood. Again, it uses royal language to describe there's a, there's a vocation that we've been given to represent God as followers of Jesus, to represent the one who loves us. This is exactly what we see Daniel doing. He says, thir- thirdly, finally, that you are a holy nation, this community, this society. This is what Jesus was up to. He's creating a holy humanity that's centered around him, uh, like the counter Babylon. <laughs> this is what's happening. It's a counter Babylon. It's not Babylon. It's not rooted in Babylonian concepts and ideas and ideology and understanding. It's rooted in a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth, a king who loves us and who gave himself for us, sacrificial love instead of selfish grabbing. And then finally, we see 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So we are. Happy Father's Day. If you're in Christ, check this out. You have a father. And this father is not ashamed to call you his sons and daughters. Let that sink in for a minute. Again, I don't know what type of relationship you had with your father, good, bad, ugly, whatever. But I want you to think about this, this new image, this new understanding that God paints, presents to you of himself. Behold what love the father has in which he calls you his sons and daughters. You're children of God. Do you know your identity? I want to finish with this question and I'm done. Lastly, what stories are you believing to be true that are in turn guiding and or misguiding your life? What are the stories? Where are they? Do you know what they are? Maybe you don't even know what they are. That's, that's fine. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why we encourage people, get involved in a small group, community group. Get involved in a community where you can begin to wrestle with scripture and pray and seek God with one another and share your stories and become vulnerable and let others reveal to them your, themselves and you reveal yourself to them. And you begin to wrestle through these things. And then you begin to, through that process, remind each other, here's who we are in Christ and here's what we're fighting, not only from, but fighting for because we want to be people that are remade, not by Babylon's, ideas and ideologies. And even San Luis Obispo, as much as we love this city, it has a value system. That's not the same value system as the kingdom of God. As great as it is, there are still areas of injustice and brokenness, even in our absolutely amazing city that we get, by God's grace, to call home. Or other outlying areas we get to call home. But the point of the matter is, we get to live into this. What are the stories that we are believing that are shaping or misshaping or guiding or misguiding us. So that's what I want for us to pause and reflect upon as we close. Why don't we all stand as we wrap this up? We're going to sing. We're going to respond. We're going we're to go to the table and be reminded. One of the reasons why we take communion every single week is a way to remind us that we are people that have been invited to a table. That's what Jesus leaves us with, among other things. But the table, this primary element where Jesus says you're invited to gather around. No matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, by faith and repentance to turning from your ways that are incongruent with the ways of God. The Bible describes as sinful, as broken, or as manipulated, or ruined, or vandalized, and then to turn our hearts to this one who loves us and takes our brokenness and makes us new. So as we sing, um, let's, let's respond to this God. 
um, as we partake of the communion, as we lift up our voices, if you're here for anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer. You just need maybe even just greater awareness of the presence of God in your life. That's what we want to be about, guys, as a church, is the presence of God that then transforms us as human beings and then sends us out as living on mission, meaning our lives have purpose and meaning. We're not just meandering. We're not just constantly feeding, looking for any type of voice that just has any bit of a heartbeat at all and says, can you speak life into me? No, we, we are able to then approach all other forms of society at large and say, we know, we know who we are. And it's not from arrogance, because again, that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel basically says, there's no room for me to look at anybody else with condescension or arrogance. It's not the gospel. Instead, there's compassion and love and gratitude. We want to be shaped in the types of people. So I'm going to pray. Let's take a moment. Let's just take a few seconds of quietness and just reflect upon what God is maybe wanting to speak to you right now. So in this moment, this might be a practice that's new to you. Just ask God. In the quietness of your own heart, just say, Lord, is there anything right now you're wanting to reveal to me, to speak to me, to show me that's inconsistent with your way? And then lead me into the way of everlasting. Lead me to trust you, Jesus.